Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. Well, as longtime listeners will know, I am being polite to every electronic device that I encounter, uh, knowing full well that they will eventually become smarter than I am, rise, exterminate the human race, and take over the world. And my hope is that they will take pity on me and incorporate me into their society where I will be a loyal servant to their to their needs. But that march, slow march to the apocalypse begins with the data industrial complex. You know, we are constantly, every day, giving large amounts of our data online to these gigantic networks uh, that then use that information to feed us other information and we keep responding ad infinitum. And these are called meganets. And this is a word that our guest today, David Auerbach, coined in his book, Meganets, appropriately titled. So we're going to get into that. What are they? How do they affect society? And what can we do about it? So let's get right into this. David. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, but the first thing I got to ask you, because I don't want to get any of this wrong, is we got to hit your bona fides, your bona fides first. So, you know, I'm not a mega net, but I did my own little research on you. So here's what I came up with, David. I got, uh, you're a technologist, a former Google and Microsoft engineer, although not at the same time, uh, a graduate from Yale. Is that true? Yeah. Yep. Done, you've done scholarly research on AI. Okay. Now that's like uh, your, yes, I have. That's like your digital portfolio, and you've also done research on Shakespeare, James Joyce. Uh, your bio, one of your bios, claims that you live with five thousand books. We see a small assortment behind you. For those watching us on YouTube, I used to, I used to a few, few, uh, more like three thousand. Now I had to, I had to clear out. Uh, I moved, and uh, there literally was not enough space here. Uh, but uh, yep. I love. Yep, there's so much good stuff out there. I I, uh, I I I love the knowledge of the past that everybody has forgotten about. <laughs> you would have loved the Library of Alexandria. I mean, that's really what it is. I mean, uh, there's there's a tremendous buy. I mean, so many. There's so much in the. I mean, so much of. I I I'm pretty light in talking about it, but a lot of you know a lot of the thinking in my book is influenced by stuff that's like you know sixty right. hundred years old. People have been thinking about those sort of things for a long time, and it's actually good to get it from a more detached perspective. I think. I think that's I think that's hundred percent right. All the incentives these days are to talk about new stuff and to talk about living people. <laughs> so. Well, this is kind of what I find interesting. So you have five thousand books. You know, you've written this this great book on the dangers of the runaway. Uh, you know, da digital data industrial complex, you know, called Meganets, uh, sub you know, sub subtitle, how digital forces beyond our control commandeer our daily lives and inner realities. So you have a digital life, but you also are very analog as well. You know, you just talked about your love of these ancient books, you know, Library of Alexandria style. Yeah. So do you consider yourself, you know, a, a digital analog? Did you morph as you got older and more and wiser? 
Yeah, well, that was what my first book was about, actually. My first book, Bitwise, was kind of a mm. memoir about being torn between those two <laughs> sides of myself and, you know, being fascinated by just how neat uh -huh. and tidy uh, digital and computational yeah, life was, true. although, uh, ironically, mm -hmm. it isn't anymore, because, partly because it's, it's increasingly mm -hmm. merging with analog offline life. And... But I mean, you know, simultaneously, also seeing that that uh, that the digital way of classifying and understanding the world was inadequate, and that also informs how I think about things these days. That as computers shuffle through and sort through um, more and more of our life and shape yeah. our reality, um, things that get lost, uh, I feel pretty attuned mm -hmm. towards and interested in, and. Um, and uh, yeah, I have a great affection for some of the things that uh, nobody talks about anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Well, there's it's, it's, yeah. a, there's a big history. I mean, you know, computers. There is actually a, kind of a long trail throughout throughout our history of of you know wanting to. You know, in some ways, we 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 like to create our technologies extensions of ourselves, right? Like machines are extension of our physical abilities to some degree. You know, theoretically, at least computers are an extension of our, you know, brain power, although they don't work at all oh, like yeah. that. But they're, you know, they're extensions, a way to augment, you know, human ability, you know. Yeah, we are. I mean, yeah, we are outsourcing aspects <laughs> of ourselves sure. to, uh, yeah. to computation. No, I, funny, I think yeah. the thing is that, you know, you can now look something up immediately mm -hmm. in the way that you couldn't when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's significant. And what we're seeing recently is just an extension of that. It's not so far off from, okay, well, now we're just going to ask AI to actually do the task of, you know, writing up things for us. Right. And it'll generate essays for us. Right. It's, it's, it's not, it's an extension. It's not like a fundamentally new thing. This is something that's been ongoing for a while. Right. No, it's very true. And the last, before we get into Megan, I got one more question for you. Uh, I also found that you lectured extensively uh, around the world on stupidity. And now, do you feel qualified mm -hmm. to do that because you graduated from Yale or where did that come about? Or just because human beings are so stupid inherently? Uh, it's actually a reference. It's a reference to uh, an essay uh, by the great Austrian writer, Robert Musil, mm -hmm. um, who wrote this great essay called On Stupidity uh, <laughs> in 1937 yeah. as, the, uh, as, the, as the Nazis were uh, coming to power. And um, <laughs> Great time. Also, there, there's a there's a, there's also a great essay that that makes its way around the internet. It's by Carlo Cipolla called uh, called the Theory of Stupidity, where he argues that uh, a stupid person is more dangerous than an evil person because the evil person hurts others to benefit themselves, right. but the stupid person hurts others and themselves. So there's actually uh, there's actually there's actually more damage done by a stupid person because. Uh, um, um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think we can all say that none of us are immune from acting in patently stupid ways, uh, myself included, and understanding what it is that leads people to act in such ways is actually pretty important, especially when uh, computers seem to be doing their best to bring out more of it. No, I, I think that's a hundred percent true. Uh, you know, it's 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 funny because you know we. So you talk about meganets, right? I want to define meganets. Uh, you know how you define it because I think 
society's failure to see what they do and their power and how we actually create them and create the world around us and have really created, you know, the, the quagmire that we're in. I think that that is I don't want to call it a level of human stupidity, but I think it's right in line with what you're saying, where I think, you know, people aren't don't do things maliciously, but they are accidentally contributing to the problem. And I think your book this describes that, you know, very, very well. Yeah, it's well, so, you know, so just to get it out on the table that I, my definition of a meganet is that it's it's a persistent and evolving and opaque data network that contains both human and and computational elements. And it's the, the combination of the two in a feedback loop that's really the important thing here. Right. And the reason why I, I thought there needed to be a new word is because I think that we've certainly, as engineers, as technology people, we've, we've incredibly underestimated the degree of influence that users have over these networks and that they're interactions with it continually update and shape mm -hmm. uh, the weights that are being used uh, in their algorithms. And with AI, that's just, um, you know, amplified that much more so. Um, and, you know, when I was at Microsoft and Google, I, I had none of us had that idea that we could actually be ceding control over our systems to users. And not in such a way that users gain sort of a decisive amount of control. It's just that if every little, if every person has a little amount of control, that does add up, and mm -hmm. it takes away from the people administering it, and that's what leads you to situations where it really does seem like Facebook uh, and Twitter don't seem to be able to control their systems, and they aren't just doing it for cash. They literally don't seem to be able to um, get these systems under a degree of fine grain control, and the cause of that is not doesn't lie in the systems. The, the the technology per se, mm -hmm. but in how millions of people are interacting with the technology with this huge amount of technology. So it's the scaling up of both people and computers, right? At the same time, which is which is interesting. Uh, you know, and, and it's it's in some ways, you know, this I don't know if this analogy holds up. It just came to me, but in some ways, it's like if a corporation were to issue stock. So everyone knows that a you know a stock certificate is one share of ownership of a company. Mm -hmm. So you know a company. You know, they divvy out a thousand shares and they keep they hang on to a controlling share, 51 percent, and they give the rest out and people pay uh, to, to be invested in that company. It seems like with a mega net, mm -hmm. that control, the 51 percent isn't held on to that. 100 percent of all the stock shares are given out to the users and they essentially have control over this corporation that would be a computer in some ways. And they get to make decisions that influence the, the, the way the company moves forward. Yeah, I, I, I think, I, I mean, I think it's a good analogy. Certainly, you know, I, I, I thought of it in the sense of that, you know, yeah, we deal with systems over which we don't have fine grain control and the economy is one of the biggest. Right, yeah. At the same time, these companies do retain some degree of, of, of sort of, of top-down control. Mm -hmm. If you could, if you could, if these companies theoretically had an infinite amount of power of thinking power, human power at their disposal because computers right. can't fill in for it, then we could say that they could still exert a level of control. The problem is, is that they can't match the control that's being created. In some ways, it's like a new influence came out of nowhere mm -hmm. and they weren't prepared to address it. Right. Um, 
uh, and you see that, uh, you know, in its purest form, you can look at something like cryptocurrency, where um, the power theoretically doesn't mm. doesn't 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 lie anywhere to begin with, right. and it just accumulates as in sort of a, a, a an influence contest of who controls the most um, mining power, or depending sure. on whatever you know who who's on the on the network the most. That right. no matter what, there's some greater aspect of consensus in play than there was before. It's not yeah. as though you know back at Microsoft, you know we ship the software and you're gonna like it. <laughs> <laughs> right. That was the attitude, 100 <laughs> percent. Yeah. That yeah. Was, but at the same time, look, it, you know, that's not to say if there's a bug, it won't get fixed, you know, but that's sure because, about that. you know, no, <laughs> nobody likes the bugs. But yeah. theoretically, if there's a bug, you know, no one's changing that code unless uh, unless Microsoft chooses to. That's no right. longer the case. Not only that, but the changes are happening in an ongoing fashion, you aren't. You can't be guaranteed you'll get the same outputs of a search or whatever, uh, or in a feed uh, a minute after, a minute later than after right. the previous one because yeah. everything's changed in the meantime. So it's like, you know, it's like you can't step into the same data stream twice if you want to use the old, <laughs> like, you know. That, well, yeah. see, there's Heraclitus. There's a very yeah. old and yeah. dead reference. Uh, yeah, yeah the, <laughs> the same. The same. You can't step into the same river twice. And what does that mean? It means you can't. You know, these systems, you, you can't treat them as sort of controlled black boxes that you can just reset. If you, How would you reset Facebook? Well, you destroy right. its value in the process. Right. So you're looking at effectively, you know, you're trying to repair the plane while it's in the air. And that really does change the degree of control you have over it because – People are uh, interacting with it even as you change it. Well, it, yeah, I like that idea. You can't step in the same in the same river because, in some ways, you know, there's you know, there's a lot of scientific principles where you know you can't touch something without it touching you. And I think yeah. that that is very true in a meganet as well. And just for examples, you know, you mentioned you know Facebook, Google's another one. So basically, it's where you have interconnected people who 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 interact with a software like Facebook and they update it and, and they give, you know, whether knowingly or unknowingly give Facebook all this data that then alters right. their algorithms that then that <laughs> algorithm is then shown back to the user who then adjusts their yeah. behavior and gives more data. And it's that loop that right. you're talking about. So that's essentially yeah, that's like a run. Exactly. Yeah. Right? It's a runaway feedback loop. Right. And, um, you know, I don't think comp companies particularly wanted to wield influence over people. It sort of just became its own thing. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, if you were to ask CEOs of tech companies, I don't think they have a great desire to shape human behavior. The problem is, is that they've stumbled into that power. Sure about well, that. they want to shape human behavior <laughs> in limited ways. Let's just say it this way. They, right. they want to shape limit, human behavior in the, in the sense of wanting them to use their products more. Mm -hmm. But – um, they don't want to shape human behavior in terms of, you know, people's uh, political beliefs because that's just a hot potato. That's just basically right. asking to get attacked. They don't want to shape people's behavior in terms of making them more abusive or more right. stressed okay. out. Okay, fair enough. You know, things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's the thing is that. The problem is, is that there was a time when it was like, okay, yeah, all we're doing is encouraging people to use our products. The problem is, right. is that 
there's now all these side effects, which is that, oh, wow, for a while it looked like uh, getting addicted to Farmville was helping our products. Well, <laughs> Facebook actually had to shut that stuff down and start yeah. deprioritizing it after Farmville was like taking over uh, taking over everybody's feeds and people were either getting sucked into it or getting utterly fed up with it. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, I, I think if you were to say, look, you know, uh, we – you know, hey, everybody, would you just use Facebook all the time and we promise not to uh, and we promise not to try to do things to get you addicted to it? Yeah. I think they'd much prefer that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that but I mean, yeah, because that's like addiction. I mean, that'd be like cigarette companies saying, like, just smoke our cigarettes and we'll take the nicotine out. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like yeah, exactly. The, exactly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I know? mean, that's the thing. This is not this is not to excuse the company. It's <laughs> right. more yeah. to say that they're in this bind now where. They're sort of they. I don't think. I think Mark Zuckerberg would be very, very happy to get all of the hate stuff off of the platform. I don't think they're making enough money off of it for mm -hmm. you know, you know the, that the, the anti-Semitic minefield that I like mm -hmm. stepped in a couple months ago yeah. to be something that they're okay with. They don't yeah. want that hot potato. Sure, but that's not to say it's not their responsibility to deal with it. It's just I want to say that when they say. Uh, when they say, okay, we're going to stamp it out, their degree of agency is limited to the more coarse-grained uh, actions like, okay, we're just going to ban all political advertising in the run-up to the 2020 election. That's yeah. not the action of some of a company that has fine-grained control. And they yeah. don't. Yeah. You know, well, see, I have a very different, I mean, I would say your outlook on, on, Corporation, the CEO is probably a little rosier than than mine because I think that oh god, then I'm, well, I'm misstating. <laughs> it should be it should be sounding fatalistic, not rosy. Well, because I mean, I think most CEOs, I think they're probably mostly psychopaths. Uh, you know, maybe not maybe not killer psychopaths, but people who don't have any any really care for anything other than the growth of the company. And I think that you know they may not want hate speech on their platform. But here's the other side of that: people are interacting with it. You know, you, you so, hate is you know you're, you're really bigoted people. They love to interact with the software and that keeps them on and keeping them on is what Facebook wants. And so in a weird way, it does benefit them. Well, I think honestly, I think it does generate enough negative publicity and press that mm -hmm. it's not a clear win for them. Uh, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Like there's something I cite in the book about like the I think it was the Swedish was the Swedish uh, the Swedish far right. And. Mm -hmm. The, the the memos seem they seem to be wanting to address it, but what they're concerned about is the message of okay, let's limit the meme that we aren't in control of our systems. Right. Yeah. Right. You know. Um, so I I don't think it's not rosy. So I, I will say this. So uh, from the time I was in uh, in the corporate world, uh, it's interesting that my experience was that a principle of mediocrity kind of prevailed. That the most psychopathic people, with some exceptions, but the most psychopathic people would get weeded out just as much as the most altruistic people would get weeded out. Okay. That the sort of the ecological pressures in these corporations sort of uh, led to sort of a compromise of people who weren't necessarily psychopathic. They were just sort of uh, go with the flow kind. Okay. Uh, you know, and that's why, you know, not at the know, top, though. I'm talking about the top, just to be clear. I'm talking about the top, not, not like in your everyday. Yeah, and that, that's where you have more variability because founders can mm -hmm. founders can vary depending on. But the mm -hmm. most psychopathic founders also tend to burn out. 
Um, right. And I'm not going to name names here because I'm going to get into control. But sure, but, yeah. uh, but I you know I've seen better and worse. And I mean there are companies that I wouldn't work for because uh, you know the 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 tone set by the founder is 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 pretty terrible but they aren't all you know logan roy from succession uh, <laughs> those people yeah. do def definitely do exist yeah. but um and this isn't to say that they are founts of um virtue either mm -hmm. but uh you know if you look at someone like warren buffett i don't think you can call him a psychopath i think he's no. certainly open to critique but i wouldn't call him a psychopath uh, i don't think well warren buffett's interesting because he's one of the few successful people that i feel feel like kind of has good motives. Like he's he might be one of the good billionaires. I mean, he doesn't do Now you sound Now you sound rosy. My uh, about him specifically. I actually I like Warren Buffett because he he doesn't seem like he's always out to kind of murder the market, which I think other people do. But I don't want to get too far down this path because as much as I love talking about psychopaths, it's not what I want to talk about. I want before we get too far afield, what was really interesting about your book is the how all of this came to be, right? And I think this kind of tickles your 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 um your history, your history uh, funny bone because yeah. because the rise of the meganet starts, I think you and I are in we're in a very specific generation, right? I think we're we're very close in age and we're not we're not really Gen X. We're not really millennials. And there's this very small window between people born in the late 70s and early 80s who yeah. are they're called uh, genennials or something. I'm going to mix it up. It's, Is that it's, what they are now? Yeah. Well, so it's a very specific. It's like a, a six to seven year window. And the, the key to it, the, the key to it is that you had an analog childhood and a digital right. adulthood. And there's only exactly. there's, it's a very yeah. small window of people who were born yeah. in that. I was born in it. You were as well. And it clearly influences what you talk about yeah. because you and I both saw the rise of comp of the personal computer from, you know, even video games like the Atari all the way through, you know, the personal computers at yeah. home. And that's, I think, very right. important to the history of all of this. Yeah. Well, I you know, we grew up in a time when its role in everyday life was marginal or mm. invisible. Yeah. And we lived through it. And optional, by the way. Absolutely central. Uh, yeah. Absolutely optional. Yeah. 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 I mean, the. Yeah, that yeah, I was into it by choice because I was fascinated by it. But most people, even if they had a PC, didn't use it. It was something that their parents used for business or something. Yeah, right. And uh, you know, there was uh, the closest thing to the internet, unless you were, uh, you know, at an academic or government institution, was something like CompuServe or mm, right, yeah. or America on online. And uh, and those were you know that 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 the availability of the internet was not there yet. And you only start getting that around the turn of the century. So yeah, I think I, you're, I think you're totally right that that distinct perspective, mm -hmm. um, definitely colors what I make of it. And, uh, it, it is hard to describe to someone who grew up with it. Well, what is it like? What was it like when you were mm -hmm. effectively limited to what was locally around you? Uh, right. When you yeah. were limited to your local library, to your local mm -hmm. uh, radio right. store. It's, it's <laughs> right. unthinkable at this. It's unthinkable at this point. Yeah. And yeah. I, video I, store. And I, that's the thing. And I think that in some ways we take for granted the nature of that change, even though and underestimate how it has impacted society. Yeah. Because the fact is, 
is, is that you are now getting inputs from around the world constantly. And I think I, I talk about in the book that that what's happened has been sort of a confusion of scale because right. um, it used to be that world events were somewhat more distant. You would read about them yeah. daily in the newspaper, mm -hmm. but they were segregated. Now, well, why is everything suddenly so political? It's because we're constantly being bombarded by right. large-scale events. So suddenly, whether you recycle feels like a political statement, that the large and the small have been conflated and confused. Right. And, um, and that's just – that seems to be just something people have slid into, but uh, but it's far it's far from obvious that that's the way it should be or the way it has to be, because we remember when it wasn't. Yeah, well, I I think that you know in some ways the 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 kind of like sub generation that we're a part of is the last frontier of the life before computers. You know, we are kind of the last voice of people saying like, we don't have to always be on our computer all the time. You can go out and ride bikes. You don't have to be connected. What's funny, to, you know? My older daughter doesn't really like computers. So really? There may be a back, there may be a backlash. I mean, I think so. Well, yeah, that's the connected, true. The connectedness of everything will still be there. That's mm -hmm. not going away. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that, you know, the point I make is that no matter what, even you can't opt out in that your data is still being shunted through all these all, all these electronic uh, networks yeah. that you can't get away from. But it is possible that we might see a withdrawal from a certain kind of uh, voluntary online life in term in terms of what we think of as social media. Yeah. That yeah, yeah. the predicted future of the so-called metaverse may not happen in quite that way. Yeah. Or maybe things will become completely virtual. I don't know. Uh, but I think that <laughs> yeah. there, there, there's room to maneuver in terms of social movements. But what's not changing is that these systems are still uh, adjudicating our lives in very key ways and collecting data. That You can't opt out of data being – even if you opt out of life online, you can't opt out of data being collected on you unless right. you're literally like living off the grid. Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting about all of this – and I could be wrong here, right? But from a historical perspective, it feels like – We've gone through as human, you know, as human civilizations, we've gone through several gigantic revolutions, you know, industrial, you had the Bronze Age, you had the Iron Age, you know, we had these gigantic technological advancements that changed society. But I think, you know, I, I, neither one of us are historians, but you definitely are more on that side than I am. But I, I think that this information revolution and computer revolution that kind of one came out of the other, that what's happening right now, I think it's unseen in human history. Because you talk about in your book, you know, Moore's law of the computer power doubling every 18 months, that's kind of been sustained for 20 years. You know, one of my friends, uh, you know, on, on one of the, this other show I do oh, on- se se 70 years, 70. Has it really, has it maintained that, that, that Since doubling the every- the transistor, yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, that's okay. That's why, yeah, that's why you've seen, yeah. Uh, so longer than I thought. So that's, that's exponential growth over all almost a century, I, there's nothing that's been, that's gone, no. you know, that, that has changed and that has changed and influenced our lives with that level. And you may make great comparisons in the book. Like if we had that exponential growth in, in fuel, you know, a tank of gas would last for years or in batteries, yeah. you know, you charge your, probably your, your phone once a lifetime, you know, I mean, right. it's <laughs> right. Like it's that it's unheard of in human history. And I think that's why it affects us and why it's affecting us so much now. Yeah, it, it, I, I mean, I think that point 
yeah, can't be stressed enough that mm -hmm. I think another statistic, you know, we produce more computable data is produced every day now than was produced in the entire history of humanity prior to the year 2000. Right. <laughs> that's that's an ungodly amount of data. Yeah. And um, it presents both issues of, OK, what can be done with that data and also how do you manage that much data because right. you've now got more data than you can possibly. So we've gone from basically an atmosphere of scarcity to one of super abundance. And that, <laughs> right, yeah. that, no, it's you know, yeah. even the act of publishing a book. You know, there was a time when there just weren't that many books being published. But now content, there's more content than available immediately. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Possibly ask for, you know, I used to be limited to, OK, whatever happened to get into um a books, you know, the local bookstore. Well, now Amazon's got a lot of books. There are books I still can't track down, but um, uh, uh, there, there's this pressure in terms of uh, the idea that, you know, it seems that if it could be produced, someone's producing it at this point. Right. Uh, yeah. Finding it could be a nightmare, but uh, but the ability to just simply get make content available any kind of content whether it's automatically connected content mm -hmm. that it is being generated so that just produces all these opportunities and as processing power goes up the ability to synthesize and analyze data in however you know whatever way right um uh, that yeah, I, I, this is this is a very big change in how we engage with the world, and it's a huge change from what we think of as, say, the mass media era of right. roughly you know nineteen you know forty to two thousand, where you effectively had a small number of large scale broadcasters, uh, whether you know whether television, news, you you name it, but right. effectively a small number that. Uh, did not conspire, but they they set the terms of debate. Right. It wasn't necessary to agree with them, but there was a shared worldview. Mm -hmm. And that does it. And I think we go on the assumption that, OK, well, something will be vindicated. But there's no need for that to happen anymore, because if you have an abundance of content, people can pay attention to whatever they want to pay attention to right. forever. It can be preserved. <laughs> forever. Yeah, so people yeah. are saying, oh, OK. Yeah, no, no, no. If you're expecting there to be some consensus on, uh, you know, uh, on what whether what covid policy was good and what was bad yeah. that's never going to happen because right. you're going to be able to find it you will find a a little a little narrative bunker that supports whatever view you happen to have <laughs> a narrative bunker that's a uh, great term <laughs> I, that's I like that's, that. that's my yeah that's that's i wrote an essay yeah narrative bunkers it's because it's not it's a great. filter bubble it's not right. about what doesn't doesn't get in it's more about a mutually reinforcing community yeah in which well yeah i don't i can uh, even if i'm challenged by something and even if some large-scale authority tells me that something is the case i can now find a community of people that will allow me to push back and stick to my guns right uh and that's why you're seeing more cases in which leader uh, in which sort of supposedly influential entities are following more than they are leading uh right because you get you get groups springing up sometimes with 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 a push sometimes spontaneously mm -hmm. and um and the elites try to leverage it rather than try to steer it that's one of my favorite one of my favorite headlines 
that I think I quote in the book is from Foreign Policy. It's like, it's time for the elites to rise up against the ignorant masses. <laughs> it's like, the minute you're publishing yeah. that headline, yeah. you've lost, right? Yeah. That, you, the elites should never have to write that article, much less publish it. <laughs> publish it. That's uh, like something by the onion. Uh, <laughs> Is that a real? That's no, a real oh yeah, it's a it's a it's a real. It, it was right after Brexit. It was before oh. Trump's election, but okay. right after Brexit. And, and what I see it is, is that okay, somehow. Not just uh, influence over algorithms, but uh, you know, political influence itself has devolved uh, in such a way that it's not uh, it's not top down control to the extent that it used to be. That doesn't mean it's not chaotic, yeah. yeah. But it is. But it's different. Well, the thing. And I think that that's all, as you mentioned, a product of these meganets. And, you know, we talked about, you know, Moore's law and computing power going, you know, being exponential for 70 years. The other key, you know, which which I think sent us into this era and probably was the beginning of your book, right? Like the meganets was the iPhone, you know, and, and, or, or smartphones in general, 2007. And what's actually funny is uh, one of the guys who was on the team that created the iPhone, John Wright, uh, I did a whole episode on, on, on the local newspapers and he is very involved in his local newspaper and has become basically a Luddite and, and, you know, and it's off grid completely. So the guy who created the iPhone who connected the world is now like, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want (laughs) to, it's not the right, you know, and, and, and that connectivity is what started to generate all these feedback loops and these voices that were never heard before. Now everyone has something to say and we have to listen to it all. Yeah, it was the idea of, okay, you no longer have to sit in front of a computer. It's no longer right. demarcated. Right. Because it you used have to, to be dial that, in. Well, you, you used to have to dial in through right. a modem to, to get in online. Now you, you don't have, have to. to. It's in. a yeah. Wi-Fi, you know? Yeah. Yeah, right. You got to be so active. It used to be that, right. So the idea that you're now, uh, in some ways, you're, you have this link, mm-hmm. this tie to online life wherever you go. Right. Uh, all the time. And you were always able to be contribu- contributing to it or being influenced by it. You were getting updated yep. by it. Yeah. That this is what, you know, and yeah, the iPhone, any sort of portable device brought you, portable internet device brought you. Uh, I mean, you know, I guess uh, you could say Wi Fi more, not Wi Fi, I'm sorry, wire, wireless uh, uh, networks, mm-hmm. you know, cell, cell wireless networks more generally, just the ability to be connected from any location rather than needing a landline or um, uh, or having to sit down at your computer and being able to demarcate, you know, online and offline life in that way. Right. Well, and that was such a big that's such a big deal. Like that's key to this whole thing because it allows people to constantly, you know, I mean, in, in smartphones, there's tons of studies. I'm going to put a couple articles on, on the website where it's changing the way human beings think. It's literally changing the way our brain processes. You know, things, we have so much stuff available to us that we can't even focus anymore because we, we can't even spend time being bored. I mean, how many times have you seen someone in a restaurant or that is sitting by themselves and can't just think they have to be on their phone? I watch people walk their dogs. They can't enjoy walk their dog without being on their phone. You know, it's the brain now it needs to be constantly stimulated. And that's part of that feedback loop, right? Like it's, you know, you're giving, oh, yeah. This information that's coming back to you and changing your behavior. And also the drive to engage, that much yes. of this content is participatory. Mm, so right, 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 oh, right. I've just seen something. I want to share my voice about this or that. Yeah. So I'm going to join in. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, and it's not, 
I guess I'm not wholly condemnatory of it. I certainly recognize its dangers, but you know, it does provide a sense of community. I think For in sure. some ways, the this idea of alienation and loneliness is being transformed because you're never truly cut off. You can find people who probably think a lot like you do, mm -hmm. uh, one way or the other. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. and w that's why I think that we're going to that people are going to join together with these people and sort of form groups that speak with one voice because they have such similarity. Yeah. Uh, you saw that, you know, when game, you know, those folks like ran GameStop stock mm -hmm. through the roof. Right. Yeah. I don't think there was any conspiracy there, but the SEC, like all these institutional investors were like, really annoyed because it's like, we've got to stop this. Mm -hmm. Like, how dare they manipulate the market in this way? It's like, all it was was a new form of coordination not previously available to, yeah. you know, podunk individuals. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that I'm talking about here, that that it wasn't that the – was the control necessarily taken away? It's more that new kinds of control were generated through that organization, through that new kind of organization. Well, and that's an interesting part of like how disruptive some of this stuff is, you know, for a couple of reasons. You know, you mentioned the GameStop. You know, GameStop stock. It's funny how the people, you know, crying foul about manipulation of the markets are literally people who are manipulating the markets. And then they were just beaten at their own game. Right. And, oh, yeah. and, well, they were. It was they were doing it the classic old fashioned right, way. right, <laughs> through, through cronyism, right, right, and it's but in some ways you know and I make fun of that, but in a lot of ways you know from a media standpoint I feel that way right like when I was going to school you had to you had to learn how to create media you had to learn how to use cameras you had to learn yeah. how to edit you had yeah. you know avid editing systems were done by engineers purposefully difficult so that you had to go to school so that not everyone could edit you know Final Cut broke that down and now anyone can edit anyone can put something online and now you know i'm i'm in a broadcasting studio in my living room you know what i mean like it's right. so the bar yeah. was lowered for me but it's also lowered for everyone else and so in a lot of ways i'm annoyed by that exactly and we haven't seen anything yet because yeah this is this is where like ai advances in mm. like audio visual yeah, yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. because you're going to be you're going to be able to create increasingly professional looking content purely through AI and it yeah. won't be as distinguishable from, you know, old Hollywood style uh, productions. Right. So uh, it's like if you know, people are already unhappy about TikTok or whatever, taking over, taking over people's time and energy. Mm -hmm. But in effect, there, yeah, there's going to be less and less sort of profit upside because there's going to be so much equivalent content that can be made right. for much, much cheaper. Right. And that, you know, yeah. that obviously applies to books as well. Yeah. You know, I just wrote a book and, you did. well, uh, you know, you can, uh, you know, what, I think Fifty Shades of Grey started off as like Twilight fan fiction or something, right? I, uh, I didn't know that, but that's a great little tidbit. I, I believe so. That, that, so you have these spontaneous, that the playbook has changed and nobody knows how you do it anymore. It yeah. seems more, uh, and I think that's analogous to uh, not, you know, the, the, the so-called rules don't seem to work the way they used to, and they don't. 
That's it's true. It's just that uh, I think we're right now in the stage of complaining that they don't work the way that they used to, rather yeah. than actually trying to figure out what figure out what's going on and how we might uh, address it. Well, you can't, and you can't become a dinosaur, right? Like I can complain about that because I spent a lot of money and I spent a lot of years studying all this, and you know, within five years it was all broken down, right? And you know, yeah. you got to go with the flow. You have to constantly, constantly change. And I think you know, yeah. w- with the MegaNet, one thing I want to talk about that I think is extraordinarily important, or at least it is to me, is I've got a, you know, I love biology and the sciences. And one of the coolest properties of increasingly complex animals, it's called emergent properties, where as a brain becomes even more significantly complex, new, you know, this is where we have the idea of consciousness and and things like that in our brain. And I think we're seeing that in the mega, and I think the meganet is in, in this lack of control, and, and you know what you're talking about. It is about that increasing level of complexity, more data, more yeah. needed. You know, the, now with com- increasing computers, the ability to compute, you know, compute all that data and you do stuff with it. And we're seeing all of this weird stuff happen. You know, these coalescing, right. you know, narrative bunkers and people online, and you're just seeing all this right. stuff. And that, you don't you know, need AI for this. To, you don't mm-hmm. need AI for this to happen. Definitely it's not happening anyway. Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, yeah, I don't know if you've read John Tyler Bonner, but he looks at emergence in like slime molds and it's really, yeah, yeah. I mean, he had, he treated primitive enough organisms that you could, you could actually figure out what was going on. The problem yeah. is, is that humans are just too damn complex. So yeah. no, it's true. <laughs> and I think that's, that's what's happening with meganets as well is that yeah. you're going, you start to see these amazing behaviors, uh, whether in AI or just in these systems themselves, that there's some sort of self-organizing going on, but we don't, but we don't understand what causes them or or quite how to control them yeah uh because the complexity is too great you would the only thing that could understand it would be a system of that size and at that point it's circular that that uh that the system can't be expected to explain themselves so so (laughs) yeah so the 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 control is going up a level to a point where even you know, groups of humans, groups of highly intelligent humans aren't going to be able to get their heads around it because it's just moving too quickly uh, and, and the system's too complicated. The thing that I think is super interesting about, you know, this increasing, you know, increasing data and the ability to analyze it, I think and these things that come right because we're looking we're you know, a human. Let's take sports, for example. Right. So there's a lot of changes that have happened in baseball this year because Due to large amounts of data on every person, the game of baseball has shifted over the past couple of years um, because we have so much more information on how people bat, where balls go, how people pitch and everything. And all of that data, human beings, you know, this, baseball is a numbers game. If you're if you like right. math and you like accounting, baseball is the sport yeah. for you. And people have been crunching numbers on athletes for the history, 120 years of baseball. And they were not seeing these patterns. Only through the ability of gigantic computers analyzing tons of data were these new patterns emerging that were always there. But now the use of those those new, um, you know, these new qualities are what's changing the game fundamentally. And I think that that's happening everywhere, not just in sports. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it may not be obvious, but it's the it, it's the same thing that's happening in chess, where yes. you now have this processing ability, processing power, able to analyze the game in ways that humans could not. Mm-hmm. So certain openings, it's like, nope, you would never need to do that. There's styles of play that just aren't going to be used anymore because computers have like 
gotten the gotten players to say like, oh, there's no point in doing that. Right. Or you can see a computer that's going to beat any human and not quite understand why it's doing what it's doing, other yes. than to know that it's analyzed tons and tons of games and is and is acting in, in a weird way. And it is the same as you're saying in baseball is that is that you've got this processing power at your at your disposal, and you've got um, yeah, fairly complicated algorithms, but that isn't necessarily the decisive factor. Right. Uh, although once you inject like um, once you once once you start doing sort of like the the alpha alpha zero chess, mm -hmm, then mm -hmm. it becomes completely opaque because you aren't feeding anything into it, and it's just learning on its own. So good luck figuring out right. how it evolved the strategy. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. And that's probably the direction where we're headed. But at least with right now, we have a more expert systems approach in chess, and uh, yeah, you learn things about the game uh, in in a way that's been happening over the years as well. I mean, there have been discoveries that were being made; they were just being made by humans yeah, rather yeah. than by computer yeah. than with huge amounts of computer assistance. So what happens when you get to discoveries that computers can make that uh, are, are just too complex yeah. for humans to grasp, where you can say like, okay, well, the ideal course of play requires a set of mental abilities that you just, that, that, that humans just don't possess. Right. That's the new, that's the new element. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, it's, it's the difference between humans looking at stuff and figuring it out and Computers figuring it out. And it's almost like, you know, humans get a 10,000 foot view of the world. And with right. all this data, now you're up to 40,000 feet. And that's how, you know, even well, in, in basketball, there's dunks and there's three point shots now. The middle of the floor is not even used and it's fundamentally changing how basketball is played. And that's sport. This isn't, yeah. this isn't human, you know, so this isn't society. This is a sport, but this is where it's used a lot. And when that starts rolling out through across society, who knows what right. happens. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's completely well taken because, yeah, it's like, okay, somehow there was a complete paradigm shift yeah. in how people viewed strategy that was only made possible with this huge right. processing power. Why would that not apply in across the board? Exactly. We're seeing it in contained. Yeah. And um, one of the things that I think is super interesting, and you mentioned this a bunch in your book, and we didn't hit on it. I have to talk about it because I think it, it kind of relates here is that you use it with tweets and that, you know, tweet a tweeting to have, a, you know, to have a tweet, have a um, power. There's a volume, the number of people connecting and engaging with that tweet yeah. or even the sheer number of tweets that are out there. The velocity, the speed at which it happens, which is, I mean, right close to instantaneous and then virility like how can it build upon itself <laughs> Vira virality, oh, virality. What, what did i say virility wait Vir oh that's virility. very different i mean that may be another that's a v good one. That's a good the one. potency the potent power of the tweet as well <laughs> virality sorry yes oh, I, you gotta rewrite that's, your book that, now that's the, that's the funniest thing ever but great. but i think all you know those four v's are true and it, it's only new in you know in social media Media where you have this, the, the, that kind of runs how things become popular, you know, and you even say that this kind of builds the careers of these, you know, kind of celebrities like Trump and Musk, who have tremendous power over over Twitter because of their ability to do these three things very well. Yeah, and to and to and to and to bandwagon jump too. Sure, that yeah, they yeah. that they will follow trends, not just initiate them. That um, you know, it, it's weird. But you know, remember, Trump is someone who switched parties and switched views. He's he clearly, you know, he clearly had an agenda of achieving you know celebrity and fame. Yeah, but 
he jumped on what he thought would work. Uh, yeah. He's sort of an empty shell in that way. <laughs> well, I mean, but that is p- part of the brilliance of that. I'm going to call him a character uh, because I, I, I'm a big pro wrestling fan and I, I see him and a lot of these celebrities that emerge. I see Elon Musk as a pro wrestling guy. You know, they're, they're, these are characters, you know, of that that kind of aren't real. They're, there's there's not substance to them. Well, that's the th- is that is that there's really uh, the it's going to be very difficult to tell whether something's kayfabe or not. Yeah. You know? Oh, good good use for uh, wrestling a fellow pro wrestling fan. Yeah, whether it's kayfabe, uh, whether it's real, it's a, real it's a, reality or reality. The concept reality. of kayfabe is incredibly relevant. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I didn't put it into the I didn't put it into the book because I guess I don't know enough about pro wrestling. But it's no no no. It's it's very very uh, apropos yeah. of not knowing whether something is what is it a shoot or a work. Yeah, right? yeah, that's right. Yeah, whether uh, it's whether a shoot is real real a work is a you're pretending real right yeah and uh, that distinction has kind of is i think collapsing yeah um in, in terms of that that there there are many things that but even if they're revealed to be uh works as we say yeah. by the time that's revealed um it's too late. Nobody, yeah, yeah. People have already moved on to the next thing. Yeah. So there's the no retractions. To, <laughs> there's, right. Yeah. And it's, yeah there's, so there's no adjudication. Yeah. Right. So I, I, I think that we're looking at a world in which you know, the concept of K, the very concept of kayfabe is almost uh, uh, obsolete mm. because ultimately you're reacting to you don't have the time to figure it out. So you're going to have to figure out what you want to do. Right. Uh, whether it's, uh, you know, it's funny you say you say it's I don't mean to cut you off there, but you say it's obsolete. In some ways, I think kayfabe's ubiquitous now because it, it, kayfabe is the idea of it being a of of manufactured reality, and I think everything online is manufactured reality. Everyone's, well, that's the thing. I think we're saying the same are we? thing. Okay. It's that yeah. Well, yeah. well if, if it all is, then it doesn't right, right. matter. Okay. That it fair is, enough. Right. Yeah. yeah that, fair that, enough. That 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 kayfabe requires there to be a difference between. <laughs> Okay. The ability yeah, yeah, yeah. to tell the difference. Fair enough. Like if it, yeah. if you don't care about it, then I, uh, yeah, it, it's it's a sheer unreality. And uh, yeah. you know, I you know, for something like QAnon, mm-hmm. there were definitely people who were playing along at some point, right? But it became as real. Uh, and you look at it and you think that it. Oh my lord! This has to be. You know, some of this has to be performance, right? Yeah. And there are cases in which people create mythologies that get out of control. I mean, supposedly yeah. uh, a certain cult that I won't mention because apparently I'll get into Careful. trouble yeah. started <laughs> did not start as a serious endeavor, but you know it became one. So well, I you know, um, and I don't know if this is what you're talking about. I have no problem, but I I interviewed on this show um, Jamie DeWolf, who's the grandson of L. Ron Hubbard, who. Uh, started Scientology and that was he's a science fiction writer so you know mm-hmm. I mean and so the, the the foundations of that you know that group are they real are they not I mean you'd have to know that the um you have to know uh, well, what is real right what is real <laughs> right yeah we don't but I mean that that's you know that's uh, I don't know if that's the example you're using but the example I'm using which fits into that which you know we don't know the intentions of the founder and if it was made up if it wasn't but people believe it right and I read an article on QAnon and you know for, from the research that this I think it was the New York Times did is it was one guy telling these stories and that mythology he was doing it for a very specific reason 
that reason became something else and then it got out of control and now you get people being elected right. to congress who are who are buying into this which is you know was a fiction right. to begin with and, and my point is my point is sorry and my point is that's only possible in these mega net systems that you're talking about in this book it, well, it used to talk. Yeah, it, it, you could, it can happen a lot more organically now. You have cases of, you know, I mean, the CIA and the KGB used to do it. Oh, they would create fictions that became real. Yeah, yeah. It's just that now you don't need to be the CIA. I mean, I always liked, you know, John le Carre books because of that, because it was like, OK, the pretense versus the yeah. reality and what is you know, how, how much can you do this? But uh, at this point, these things are just happening spontaneously. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't seem to be that. You know, it, it's hard to tell what's going to be generating virality. It seems to still be right. a matter of chance as much as anything else. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's but, you know, you still have people trying to flood the system in one way or another. Um, what's funny about virality is, you know, it's it's people do try in television. People are always trying to copy what's popular. Right. And the truth is a TV show or a movie becomes popular sometimes because of it being a novel idea or a, a new way to film or a new storytelling technique that can't really be replicated successfully, although people try it in both mediums. And the same is true of like a viral tweet or a meme. You know, you see tons of people trying to just copy what everyone else is doing mm -hmm. in the attempt to catch lightning in a bottle. But I still think that capturing that lightning in a bottle is unique. You know, the things that are really new and really go viral are because no one's seen them before, not because they're copied from someone else. But people still try to figure out that formula, that algorithm for virality. Right. Well, I think that I think that des that desperation is why you see so many reboots and yeah, right. you know, like lore things. It's like, well, you know, the Marvel universe starts off, anything in the Marvel universe starts off with a boost to okay, the, to uh, to the attention that it's going to get. You know, do we really need another Star Trek series? Probably not. Right. But it's going to get more of an audience than an actual new uh, uh, science fiction show, yeah. uh, which might succeed or might not. Uh, yeah, no, and it's very true, but it's just funny how everyone's tr everyone is trying to figure out this system that I think, you know, you mentioned, you know, these gigantic networks, they, they're not controlled. And I don't think they can be figured out because they're they're working with systems that are foreign to the human brain. They're, they're, they're computing things just in ways that our brain doesn't un even understand the process, much less the outcome or how they got there, you know? I mean, I, you, you know, I think you can pick them apart in microcosm. Okay. It's just that, you know, if you have a small system, you can look at it and map it, but right. you don't have that time to do it. There's just no way you have the time to do that. All you've got is right. because you've all, it's all the, the horse is already bolted for any given barn that it's escaped from. Right. <laughs> right, um, yeah. I, I, but so I think that, you know, yeah, you're not going to do it in a targeted way, but you do. I think you can do things like just try to slow things down. Like yeah. if you say, OK, we're not going to try to filter out this particular kind of content, but we're at least going to just make virality itself harder to achieve that, I think. Uh, that's a more reasonable goal. How exactly you do that? Uh, is up for debate, but I think that they are at least are looking at something that you could do, and that has been done yeah. because um, you know Facebook limited forwarding to like you couldn't forward a link to more than five people any right yeah yeah <laughs> in the in the in the 2000 election it's like that that's and it's like yeah that probably made a difference it's hard to measure but but you know in that well 
you know you're not missing something because it's it's across the board. Yeah. Uh, so the question is, how can you do that in a in in a sort of a fair in a fair way mm-hmm. and in a way that's not unduly restrictive? Uh, I think I think that's effectively what you're saying. Right I, I think so, mm-hmm. and I think you know in the book you talk about controlling a meganet, right? Like you you inherently people, it's out of control. It's a runaway it's a runaway train right now. It's a runaway nuclear explosion, right? And but you do give ways to, con- to to control it, and I love this, you know, because ba- well, to, to tame, to tame it, it, if not control. Sure, it, sure, I, fair yeah. enough. I'm giving you more power, but but I liked your ideas yeah. because really, it's almost like the Joker's strategy, right? Like it's the idea that you can put chaos into the system, and that chaos because it kind of doesn't fit into the natural, you know, almost OCD like order of a computer system. That that's what will make it more. Um, more palatable to human beings and make it a better ecosystem. So explain how do you what's your what's your idea for that? Well, there's a couple of them. But, yeah, it gets to the idea of, okay, well, how uh, we know that there are these problems here, Mm -hmm. but we live with the the problems because they aren't making themselves so strongly felt. Yeah. And there's a couple ways to uh, I guess there's two. One way, one broad approach is to go in and say, okay, well, um, we're just going to slow things down, period. Everything is just going to be right. put on delay. People will have to take their turns. There'll right. be yeah, less. Yeah. That's a know, good idea, by simply, the way. It's going just things that will, uh, you know, the loud, the loudest loudmouths will, as a matter of course, be pushed to the back of the line as opposed to always been. So, ideas like that. Uh, and I mean, I think that you do have to experiment here, but that's the sort of idea I'm taking where you are trying to sort of say, oh, okay, we're going to try to figure out whether something is abusive or not and, and, and regulate people's tones and whatever, because I just, I think that's a non-starter, yeah. Yeah. but, um, but, but, but just ways in which you don't allow, um, uh, you try to break up the homogeneity mm-hmm. you, and you, you, you stop grouping, you, you stop doing so much grouping by likeness. You stop giving people more and more of what you think they want because you're shunting them into those narrative bunkers and you actually explicitly try to make things more heterogeneous. Right. I think TikTok has done something like this. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think I saw, I thought Facebook was trying something like this too, that, where you're effectively saying, okay, well, you know, we've been giving people what we want, what they want or what we think they want. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's actually not such a great idea. Maybe we shouldn't, maybe giving people what they want is not always the best, right. uh, the best approach, <laughs> yeah. uh, or what they think they want, yeah. because uh, you know, it, it seems obvious. But the problem is, is that if you're not going to give them what you think they want, what do you give them? And mm-hmm. that's not, and that's not a, that's another hot potato that no one wants. Yeah. The other approach, though, is the one that you talked about, which is actually like screwing with the data and trying to basically lower confidence so that, right, it, it, right. Yeah, right now you have all this data going around that's not even validated. Mm-hmm. You know, it's taken to be true. Mm-hmm. Well, if you can get it so that uh, it's harder and harder to take it as true because it's so uh, it's that much more unreliable, yeah. then you can actually start to you can at least start to have more validation mechanisms, and you can say, okay, well. You know, we're going to have to ask people if this is correct about them. Right. Um, and I think I, 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 I actually I think banks actually are doing that right now where they'll say like, oh, is this true about you? Because they actually need to know. So if you could and that 
does actually stop them from doing quite the level of, uh, of data analytics that uh, and and marketing mm-hmm. that you get in in other advertisements in our other advertising where the uh, stakes aren't so high and where there isn't as much regulation. So if you can poison the data, mess with the data in some way, uh, then you get to the point that okay, well this data is less useful and okay well you've effectively reduced the amount of data out there even if amount of useful data out there so even if that data is being produced um it's not going to come into play as much that's the hope anyway so that's what when i talk about chaos yeah i'm talking about that of saying like well if you can somehow make this data less useful Mm -hmm. then you are reducing the um uh, the the ability for it to be used and sort of feed into feedback loops because it has to be spat back at people before that feedback loop can start well and i was looking i mean one of the other things is you know kind of Maybe you mentioned this already, but shooting, you know, new information into groups, right? Like breaking up Internet yeah. groups by injecting new ideas. That's, and in some ways it works yeah. like a noise canceling system. You know, you're 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 giving an equal and opposite you know, waveform uh, that's going to you know mitigate the noise. You know, uh, that's kind of that's a, the hope. That's yeah. the idea. Right. <laughs> and I think that it's a good idea. That's the hope. Yeah. That, that I mean, even if it doesn't mitigate the noise, just something to, you know, to to de-ossify, mm. to, to, to rattle it a bit yeah. so that people aren't constantly getting reconfirmations of what they already think, even if what they already think is correct. Right. And it's interesting because I do, <laughs> yeah. I do have I, – I, it's funny because, I, yeah, I have, I have conversations with – some interviews I've done, mm-hmm. uh, people just will not – some interviewers will not let go of this idea that they have that there is truth – and rightness Mm -hmm. and this is what needs to be shown to people Mm -hmm. and no matter how much i say like okay well look how are you determining right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that that no matter how much i say that it's like look i I certainly have very strong opinions on what i think to be true Mm -hmm. or not Mm -hmm. i have my doubts but there's certainly a lot of nonsense out there but i don't have any illusion that i can enforce that yeah Uh, right uh, i i think it may be a relic from um from from the mass media era where it was like look if you can get if you can get the three networks to all adopt this narrative frame mm-hmm. well then then people are going to believe it sooner or later i mean I, you know if you watch uh you know if you watch fox news say for a week it doesn't matter if you are a flaming liberal you'll start to conceive of things in their frames mm-hmm. yeah and once you've done you know they've kind of got you because yeah. Um, you're now fighting on their territory, even if you're disagreeing with them. The, the very <laughs> yeah. choice, the choice of issues and debates right. is being set by them, and that, yeah. that's again, and that was obviously that was what was happening in the mass media era. Right. It's just that was just how it was, and uh, you know there were problems with that too. Um, it's just that you know now that that era is gone. There's no reason why people are going to buy into the establishment narrative if they can get enough support right. from wherever it is. And that's why no matter what they did, you know, there was apparently, you know, there's like a 30 percent anti-vaccination sentiment, I want to say. I, I remember saying that. it was like 30 percent of the country was like oh, vaccines are bad. Yeah. OK, so I'm not going to whatever leaving. Let's just say be completely agnostic about mm-hmm. this. That number did not move, whether or right. not, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, whether no matter what side you were on, you weren't going to be the other. That other very early on, those numbers were set, and they weren't going to move. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I mean, even pre something like presidential approval ratings, they stay with a much narrower boundary than they ever did when, uh, you know, when we were growing yeah. up, uh, where they could go up and down. The idea of a 91% of presidential approval rating seems crazy now. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Well, and I think that that's part of like human nature, right? I mean, we are always, there's just going to be a certain part, segment of the population that's going to believe certain things. And, you know, it's just, it's just human nature. You know, there's the 80 20 rule where, you know, 20% of the people uh, do the work and 80% of the people, you know, don't. Right. I mean, like these types of generalities in, in human behavior have kind of existed forever. But I, I think it's all kind of, you know, brought to the forefront with the amount of data on people. And, and I think that that's kind of, you know, in closing here, what I think I really enjoyed about your book was that, you know, this is, you know, it's happening now. This is the type of data that's going on, you know, is uh, data collection and data processing is unheard of in human history. And it's going to have, you know, there are, we're just beginning to see the difference. You know, I remember when, you know, when uh, in 9-11, when I was in school, they were talking about, you know, NSA is going to be collecting data on people and people were outraged by it. You know, like, I don't want people getting my data. And now we voluntarily give millions every single, you know, millions of terabytes of data to, to people every single day. Right. I may be overstating it a little bit, but we've become so used to it. And I think, you know, uh, I say it again, you, you and I, maybe not alone, but, you know, our generation, our sub generation might be the last frontier of people who remember a time where we didn't just give data freely uh, and it's, you know, doesn't become natural. Well, or and, and or it's collected without us even knowing. It. And, and people know, not like, caring. We uh, might be the last generation that actually cares about that stuff. I, I think. Yeah. Well, it's just I could be wrong, but that no, I, um, no, no. I think you raise a, a very good point that I think the uh, what, what's happened has been that we just take for granted that everything is being recorded. Of yeah. course it's being recorded right. and uploaded somewhere that <laughs> right. yeah, because yeah. this ability exists, how, how, yeah. how do you get away from being monitored? Um, I, I think there's still, there's more to come on that because a lot of it, a lot of it doesn't go to the government right now. Um, and uh, we, we haven't gotten to the quite the point like in England. I know that, you know, CCTV is everywhere. I don't think that's quite the case here. Uh, but I, you are going to this where effectively um, the data will always be available. It's just it's going to be more a question of, well, how who's going to sort through it? all? Right, I mean, yeah. The NSA even had that problem after 9-11. Yeah. They collected it all, but they didn't know what to do. Right, with it. Yeah. They literally they it was they even called it a vacuum cleaner. approach. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, well, I mean, look, I mean, even in my uh, neighborhood, people, you know, I live in a great neighborhood, but a lot of people get sold on ring cameras. Right. So, you know, even people are being recorded now just by walking down the street. And that fundamentally, yeah. like you said, when you know that it fundamentally changes your behavior, maybe for the better maybe for the worse but when you know you're being recorded all the time is that what we want in society you know uh is, is but it's inevitable and, well china china is the place to look on that because yeah. they they effectively have been doing that for a long time and they can't keep up with it either their government actually can't keep up with it they they i mean they have like ten thousand uh sensors or whatever yeah. looking at looking at tweets and I mean, obviously, it's it's a less free society, but it's not as though they have some perfect totalitarian regime. A lot gets through. Yeah. So, no, it's it's so, true. Uh, 
and, and maybe that's a comfort to some, you know, maybe that's a comfort in some ways that, that <laughs> yeah. this is something that, you can't yeah, do it. well, if, if nobody can, if nobody can have control, well, maybe that's better, yeah. you know, it depends, it depends on your overall attitude. Uh, but the problem is, is that uh, when things go crazy, that's, that's when you actually do want someone to have control. Yeah. No, so you can't. A hundred percent. And these are the types of things. This is what you, you know, you put my brain through and reading this book. So it's a fantastic book. You know, uh, Megan, it changes your paradigm. It changed my paradigm. So how, how can people find it? How can people find you, uh, you know, and engage with you? Let's get your virality and virality up. Let's get both of them yeah, go through the roof. Uh, well, I guess uh, I have a sub stack that I've been updating pretty regularly. It's our stack. That's A-U-E-R-S-T-A-C-K. Okay. Yes. Uh, and uh, uh, and you can get the book on uh, all the usual places. If you just search on Meganets, uh, you can buy magnets, too, because they show up when uh, they show up when you uh, when you search on my books. Sure. Oops. Should have thought should have thought that one through. Um I don't know if you if you know the insane clown posse magnet meme, but uh, that one's been thrown at me a lot. I, I do, I do. I'm I'm aware of that one as well. Yeah. So so I've gotten me- meganets. How do they work? Yes, I've gotten that quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> what so, about Twitter, Facebook? Uh, do you do any of those? Are you a part of? Are you part of the I'm meganets? On Twitter as I'm. Uh, oh yeah, you can't you can't fight City Hall. I'm on face. If you search on my name, David Auerbach, you will you will find me in the usual places. Uh, on Twitter, I'm Auerbach Keller. K e l k e l l e r. That's a reference to Goethe's Faust. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's 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 my uh, intellectual opponent. Uh, no one ever gets that. But, uh, I do like that you put the Easter eggs in there for for people who uh, you know. For the intelligentsia. Uh, you keep yourself amused somehow, Absolutely. right? Well, you know, I named the, my first book I called Bitwise because Bitwise is a technical computer term. So I was like, okay, people will at least know, okay, here's someone who knows what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. Like, Get any part of the group. It, 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 so uh, so that, that, that's a signal. I don't know. Um, uh, Meganets, you know, there was the issue of, well, you know, Mega's kind of small these days. Uh, should we call it Yada Nets or something? <laughs> okay. But that got shot down by my editor. So. Uh, that got really shot down. Uh, Yada Nets just apparently doesn't run on, run on, run off the tongue quite the same. I like way. it. Well, I'll make sure that I have the right links. Uh, you know, I'll put them up on the website so people can find you easily because that's what we want. We want we want it to be searchable. Yeah. You know, that's the whole part of Meganet. It can't be uh, difficult. Well, right? And that is indeed the ch- the great challenge. Exactly. <laughs> well, I'm gonna pu- I'm gonna stop. I'll make sure people can get in touch with you. And of course, if you want to find this show, fascinatingnouns.com is the place to find everything. I'm on Twitter, Fascinating Noun, and of course on Facebook, at Fascinating Nouns. And, you know, this has just been a great conversation, David. Uh, Thank you for writing this book. Hopefully enough people will read it. Uh, I don't know what it will do because it's inevitable, but I think being knowledgeable, you know, as the G.I. Joe says, knowing, you know, knowing is half the battle, right? And uh, if we know about this, maybe we can figure out some way to for it to be less toxic to us. And thank you for reading it. You know, I think that's uh, I, <laughs> everybody. I'm I'm increasingly grateful. Just uh, people take the time and find something of value. The goal is not to become Malcolm Gladwell, mm-hmm. but I would like the people for whom it. Uh, the book is useful to to run into it. That's the trick. Well, I'm going to do my best for that. You know, I I, I want to, I'm going to ask, you know, for a fascination, turn David Auerbach into Maxwell, Maxim Gladwell. What did you say? Maxwell Gladwell? What was it? 
Marcus Gladwell. Oh, Malcolm, Malcolm, Gladwell. Malcolm we're going to turn you into. I don't know. I don't know who you want. We're going to turn you yeah. into Malcolm Gladwell uh, if, if we can. Talk about talk about the talk about virility, <laughs> uh, volume, velocity, and virility. Exactly. Uh, I'm going to. I'm I'm hanging on to that one. That was you better great. give me. You better give me credit, man. You better. I'll, I'll come find you. Uh, uh, I'll, I will. I will. I'm not going to take credit for that one. For, thank for, you. for, for sure. Uh, well, if it, um, uh, and, and you know, I want to thank you for being on the show. Uh, I'm glad to give that to you. Take it with what you want, and uh, I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.